everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I'm sitting down today with Denise Hearn, who is the co-author of The Myth of Capitalism. And she also has an excellent Substack under the uh, published under the title Embodied Economics. Denise, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. And technically, it's actually a ghost, not a Substack, um, which I probably made the mistake of going with ghost because... You know, there's no functioning comment section, but <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Anyways, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, uh, the ghost is the more decentralized option, right? Something like it's that. It's a nonprofit. Yeah, I had seen a couple of other folks had moved over from Substack, so I gave it a try. Um, mm. Very cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, but yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna look at some of your writing today. Um, in particular, three pieces that I, I read, did some highlighting on. There's a lot of a lot of juicy topics to talk about. Before we jump into that, probably be useful for my audience for you to just give like a one or two minute uh, highlight of what you're working on, what you do. Because um, I know you mentioned offline, there's some things you're working on there that are pretty interesting. So if you would. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the uh, the book that you referenced, The Myth of Capitalism, um, came out in 2018. And in it, we tried to understand what are some of the structural drivers of inequality, why are wages, you know, divorcing from productivity. And our research really led us to the conclusion that um, industry concentration and you know, concentrated industries, monopolies and oligopolies were at, at the time a sort of lesser discussed um, factor in some of the some of the economic um, trends, which had really been confounding sort of traditional um, economists. And so that kicked me off into my life as an anti-monopolist. And now I spend some time working with uh, a group in DC called the American Economic Liberties Project, which does anti-monopoly policy work. And um, and I think what has been a huge education for me is just seeing how pervasive it is across industries. So we tend to think of tech, obviously, but you know, we speak to pharmacists and farmers and uh, all kinds of folks who are encountering coercive contract terms or predatory pricing or whatever the case may be. So that's my day job. And then, uh, you know, I recognize that those are, um, you know, those structural problems are a result of, um, you know, underlying systemic issues. And so that's mm -hmm. where I explore a lot of the rest of my thinking in the Substack slash ghost. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, anti, to be an anti-monopolist, I think you're in good company with my audience today. Most, I'm pretty sure, are aligned against the concept of monopolies as well. So that said, I'd like to read an excerpt. We're going to be first looking at your piece, What is Life? What is Economic Value? Um, and you know I like a good question. So these are two really good questions. Um, you wrote, and you opened with a, a quote from Carl Minger, actually, who said, quote, value is thus nothing inherent in goods, no property of them, nor an independent thing existing by itself. It is a judgment economizing people make about the importance of the goods at their disposal for the maintenance of their lives and well-being. Hence, value does not exist outside the consciousness of humans. Uh, I think we switched man to humans, but that was just mo uh, modernizing it a bit there. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So this is a great question. What is value? And this is something that, in my opinion, is right beneath the question, what is money, right? You, you ask the question, what is money? You typically get these three functional responses, store value, medium of exchange, unit of account, right. which begs three more really good questions. Like, okay, well, what is value? What is exchange? What is to hold to account or to account? Um, each of those is a rabbit hole in and unto itself, but value is especially interesting. Um, and what I learned in the Austrian school is that it's all ultimately psychological, that even though we typically relate to value being, uh, you know, a lot of people use the term intrinsic value to think of values in, in the, in an object that it's ultimately, what is that object's relevance to the course of our goal directed action? And that's, that's inherently subjective, right? That's for you to determine as a conscious actor in the world. Um, how do you describe value to people? It's not an easy question to answer. Um, how do you look at it? Well, I think, you know, I pose these questions to myself because they're sort of ongoing inquiries. Um, and I don't think that I have a succinct answer yet, but I think the concept of value is really fascinating to me because, um, as you mentioned, the sort of traditional proxies that we use, let's say price as an example, or, um, you know, if you're thinking about a company's value, you know, it's stock price. And that's what I go into into the piece is that um, it doesn't take very long to, to realize that these things are inherently, um, you know, they can be manipulated. Uh, they can seem very divorced from, from inherent values that we might have or like mm -hmm. to see expressed within our economic system. And so the kind of proxies that we have for values seem not fit for purpose, um, especially as we think about, you know, we're on a planet that has, you know, I mean, I would say most people believe planetary thresholds and, and uh, you know, social floors that need to be maintained and uh, the kind of value that is circulating, the kind of economic value and the, the units of measurement that we have for that don't seem to adequately reflect, um, you know, the type of value that I think we're going to need to both measure and account for and exchange in the future. And so, um, yeah, so I, I don't entirely know. I think value, I think what I find interesting is that there's like this inherent um, dichotomy where value certainly is collectively, so it's not agreed, uh, it's, there isn't a collective agreement. Mm -hmm. um, it is this emergent sort of emerges, emergent function of the system where um, market participants do, you know, exchange. And so there's, there's some sort of, um, there's a point at which value is agreed upon in, in individual exchanges. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that, I think that value, um, particularly in price might actually be a better proxy for power relationships and power asymmetries in markets, because, um, you know, if, there are many examples, of course, where price might be more representative of the fact that um, you 
you're forced into a collective agreement um, mm-hmm. at that point of transaction versus it being something that is sort of willingly entered into. So I don't know. Those are those are cert- some of the questions that I'm asking myself in terms of how do we understand and represent economic value and um, what might it look like in, in the future that would look very different than how we consider it today. Yeah, it's definitely there's not an i guess that was a kind of a trick question because there's not an easy answer for it i was just curious how you describe it um one thing i well one thing i've learned from the austrian school is this concept of the inequality of exchange so we typically think that okay if someone traded a boat for a car for instance that you would presume the boat and the car have equal value Mm. but what's actually happening is that there's a certain perspective of the guy trading away the boat and the guy trading away the car that they actually value the thing they're receiving more than the thing they're giving up. Otherwise they wouldn't trade. Right. And they both have to do this. So the guy trading away the boat values the boat less than the car and vice versa with the the counterparty. So there's an actual inequality of exchange that drives trade And that trade is what is the mechanism through which internally held values become expressed in a price, right? That's how we determine a price is an exchange ratio, basically denominated in money. Mm -hmm. So one of the, my key takeaways there is, okay, and this may not be an exact science, but we could say that mutual exchange is value. It creates value. It generates value because you've now both of these people, both of these parties to the trade are at least psychologically profitable or psychologically better off, or they've created some psychological value by engaging in a mutual trade. But if you introduce an asymmetry to that equation, like a coercive term or you know any violation of property rights or, or physical threat, then by definition, one party to that trade, the individual being coerced, is not getting any value, right? They're losing value because otherwise they would have done it voluntarily. Right. Um, so that's where I get, I guess, kind of a basis for my, my anti-coercion views. I just think coercion is like a systemic rot on human society. Like anywhere there's coercion, it's value destructive. So hence, you know, legal monopolies, um, any violation of property rights or liberty whatsoever um, is, is value destructive. That's interesting. Um, any, any violation of Liberty is value destructive. Yeah. In my view, I think so. Um, now you could always, you know, the justification held out for coercion is always in response to coercion, right? Like we shouldn't compel or coerce anyone to do anything unless that person compelled or coerced someone else to do something. Um, but this gets, I don't know, it gets muddy really quickly because then you get into the political domain and people think that, you know, you need to pass laws to tell certain people what to do for the greater good. And, um, I don't know, it's harder to define that because it seems like the greater good people would voluntarily do what's in their own best interest. And the emergent quality of that would be the quote unquote greater good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I yeah, this is this gets to a question too that I have about the fundamental nature of markets, which is, um, you know, 
I guess my, my opinion is that markets are socially or politically determined commons spaces um, where they, they have, or they're, I'll say it this way. They're common, they're common spaces, which have either socially or politically determined rules of engagement. Um, and, and that that sort of rulemaking is part of the, like those collective agreements that we form around markets are um, an inherently important part of, of them and how we participate in them. Um, and that there's a sort of like reflexive nature of, you know, the, the institutions or the, the things that we, that we create to then govern, uh, govern us, have this, this downward causation on our behavior. And then you mm, know, yes. change the, we can also change the rules and sort of have an upward causation in terms of, um, in terms of thinking differently. And you see that of course, across time where we've determined it's, you know, it's not, um, it's not moral to, to exchange humans in markets. It's not moral to exchange mm. human parts in markets, these different mm. things. And so, but those are, but those have been sort of socially or politically determined as a, you know, as we've evolved, mm-hmm. but I, I'm curious how you would, how you would define markets or think about them. Yeah. First of all, I just want to highlight that I really do agree with this idea of what you referred to as upward or downward causation. Um, I call it either reflexivity or um, it, it gets really, there's, I talked to a clinical psychologist about this. He called he said that all identity is co-determinant. So the rough example here is like, you can't be a dancer until you're dancing. And it's not a dance floor until it's being danced upon. So the agent, the dancer becomes a dancer by dancing and they make the arena a dance floor by dancing on it. So there's this interesting relationship between agent and arena and they, they, co-emerge right they co-inform one another so if the dance floor changes shape well maybe the dancing technique has to change it's changed somewhat to dance better on the dance floor i'm kind of stretching for an example here but the what did churchill say like the buildings we make in turn make us something like Mm -hmm. that so Mm -hmm. there's this co-relationship this mutualizing relationship between creator and creation Yes. Um, I think you see it too in software where like we've just started down the path of this digital age, but already our, our vernacular is changing. People are like, Oh, let me double click on that. Or let's do Mm -hmm. a quick download about this. You know, it, it it reshapes you, it reshapes the the way you're thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's, go ahead. That just made me think too that um, a friend of mine named Katrine Marcel, who's a Swedish economist and author who wrote two fantastic books, the first of which is called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which I highly mm. recommend. <laughs> um, and the second is uh, Mother of Invention. And it talks about how actually gender bias uh, basically is one of the, the key drivers of which innovations actually go to market and become adopted and, and don't. And the, the key example she uses is that we didn't put wheels on suitcases until the eighties, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that we had invented the wheel 5,000 years ago. And it more had to do with the fact that 
people thought that it was not masculine to wheel a suitcase, you know, you should be able to carry it and particularly for your female partner. And, um, and so that's why we didn't do it for, you know, centuries, even though it would make a lot of sense. Um, Mm. but she, uh, but she also pointed out to me that I think is really interesting is that the the values of the society also physically manifest in the skyline of cities. So mm-hmm. if you go back, um, you know, to the Middle Ages, the highest the highest buildings you would have observed were the spires of of the churches and cathedrals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then uh, if you look today, or then and then it sort of moved to the houses of parliament you know if you think of london you could think of big ben and then and then today of course is the financial towers uh which dominate the skyline and and you know sort of as a fun question i like to think about you know a couple hundred years from now what what entities what what narrative um what narrative structures, you know, through which the kind of medium of, of values get dissipated will be physically manifested in the skyline of our mm. cities. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about. Um, I, I just did a series with Jeffrey West, who's at the Santa Fe Institute and he wrote the book uh-huh. scale. I don't know if you've heard of this one. I think so. um, yeah. He identified some universal scaling laws in biological life but also in businesses and in cities so there's this kind of through line what's that is it the square cube law yes yeah uh, it's related to uh power of four so there's sublinear and superlinear scaling depending on what you're looking at you know um for instance i think the metabolic rate of animals is sublinear so it scales at like at three quarters power laws something like that but there's a lot of really interesting things like all animals basically have the same amount of heartbeats in their life, mm. which is really interesting. It's just, if you're really wow. a big animal, you have a, I hope I'm saying this right. Slow heartbeat and a longer life. If you're a small animal, you have a more rapid right. heartbeat, shorter life. Oh, interesting. And it, wow. and it plots like on a log scale, just like a perfect line. It's really unbelievable. So he's like, he's touching on something that's like clearly very deeply embedded in the nature of growth or life, which we're about to get into life, by the way, we don't really know how to define it. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, it's interesting because there's those physical limitations on, um, how, how big an animal can, can grow relative yes. to its, its size. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Because you're, um, what would this be? The strength of the bones. Like he, he goes into why Godzilla can't exist. Right. And it's the, right. The volume of the animal scales super linear to the structural integrity of the bones or something like that. Um, Which is also why it's harder to continue building taller and taller buildings. Yes, exactly. So uh, I forgot why I got on the topic of Jeff West. Um, Scaling. uh, Values manifesting in the skyline. (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay, great. He makes this sort of speculation in the book that because, you know, there's a certain uh, network features, network architecture in the brain. You also observe this network architecture in cities. And Mm -hmm. so he kind of makes this speculation that we could say that the cities and environments we create for ourselves are in many ways a reflection of our cerebral um, architecture. Um, and then we can populate, you know, as to your point, it's like we populate 
the external world with manifestations of these ideas that we're running on. So yes, the software we run ends up changing the actual civilization. So, and it's crazy to think about because then the world or the worlds we create just become a reflection of our mind. Um, yes. And I actually read an article recently that um, was talking about how it's not just a reflection of our mind and our sort of cognitive faculties, but also of our internal organs and that hmm. the tools that we've built throughout time are sort of representative of our embodied nature in, in our bodies. So a hammer, you know, is sort of hmm. like a, a, a more effective fist and hmm. that, um, and yeah. And that, like, you know, because I often think about this where there's, there are so many other types of intelligence and even bodily intelligence or capabilities that animals have that we don't as, as humans have. And, um, in some ways, you know, I think that that's constrained our understanding of what's possible or what's physically possible based on sort of just our own embodied experience. Um, you know, now with technology, we're starting to be able to you know, the whole field of biomimicry is adopting mm-hmm. some of these patterns, but um, yeah, anyways, I'd have to go back and read the article, but I thought that was a really interesting idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense because we've been acting a lot longer than we've been, you know, thinking and making tools. So if we're going to make a tool, probably just try to make something we know that works a little bit better. Um, yeah. And are, are you familiar with this, um, the field of embodied cognition? Okay. So this is something I talked to John Verveke about. Uh, there's the four E's, right? I'm just learning about it. So you okay. probably have no more than I do, but, um, I find that, a, I find that a deeply interesting concept, um, particularly as we do think about developing technology and, sort of virtual, you know, reality and experiences, there's, there's so typically so much of an emphasis on the cognitive processing in the brain or the neural processing Mm -hmm. versus the, you know, the idea that the brain is this, this sort of recipient of all of these embodied experiences that we have, um, which also are very embedded within, you know, the systems and the web Mm -hmm. of relationships that we have, um, with the physical world and that that sort of co-shapes even how we cognate. Um, Mm. and it's not just, it doesn't just sort of exist here, you know, uh, I think the, you know, the gut has, I can't remember, it's like five times more, um, nerve endings in the brain and different things. And so, so there's this complex dynamic, um, even within our own bodies of how information flows and how it's processed, which I think is interesting. Absolutely. It's, um, and I think there's also neurons in the gut and neurons in the heart. There's a lot more in the brain, but there are neurons in the gut and the heart. And we know this intuitively when we make decisions, you know, trust your gut or follow your heart, all this. So um, I think it's actually the four P's. I said the four E's, but it's the four P's. And I can only think of three of them, but he described, and these are different types of knowing. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not sure this is exactly what you're talking about, but I think it is. And he described procedural knowing as different from perspectival knowing versus propositional knowing. And there's a fourth one that I can't recall right now, but procedural is like, it's something encoded in your body. You know, if you've, um, what do they say about riding a bike? Like, Oh, it's like riding a bike. You know, your body is just programmed to know how to do it. You're not 
consciously, like every time you get in the car, you're not okay. Now turn the key and think about you just, your body's programmed for it. That's a, that's a procedural knowing Uh, propositional knowing is what we traditionally think of as knowing, like I can name it and talk about it, conceptualize it. Perspectival is interesting though. Um, which gets into psychotechnologies. He describes knowing through something. So like we Mm. think through language, right? but we we very rarely do we stop and like take off language and examine it and think about language. It's just so second nature to us. Mm. Um, Money also falls in this category. Like we think through money, you know, we negotiate and calculate. We don't often, so often stop to think about it even though that's what I'm trying to do over here. Let's get people to stop and think about it a little more. (laughs) Um, But that idea is really interesting too. It gets into, and he turned me on to this, was material engagement theory. I don't know if you've heard about this yet, but they use as their main descriptive example, the, the case of a blind man with a stick. And it's trying to make the point, if the mind or brain is purely brain bound, um, a blind man is basically thinking through the stick, actually, like as he walks around, the stick is tapping the external environment mm-hmm. and it's giving feedback to his mind. So he's able to think in a way with the stick that he would not be able to think without, right. The, the, the stick becomes an extension of his, his, his procedural knowing, I guess, like he's actually, mm-hmm. um, it's an extension of his body. And we know this too, almost kind of like with driving, you know, when you're driving and you're parking a car, you can kind of just feel where the parking spot is. You're not propositionally calculating where it is. There's just a a feeling to it, I guess. Um, But that all, that whole domain is super interesting because it gets to the crux of that connection between agent and arena. There's, it's hard to draw the line. Like, where do you draw the line? Cause then do you say, okay, the blind man's mind, does it end at the outside of his skull or the tip of the stick? And if it well, and the tip of the stick is engaging with a constantly dynamic and complex world, exactly, which is also influencing the pattern of interpretation. Yes. So it's you know, so it doesn't even end at the stick. It's a sort of yes. <laughs> and I yes. like uh, I don't know if you've come across Nora Bateson's work at all, but um, I like how she describes warm data, which is um, sort of the thinking about the relationship in the contextual relationship um, between different entities and objects and that actually being as rich a source of data as what we tend to think of as sort of like hard, hard data. And the best example um, or, you know, one of the the things that she mentioned that I thought was really interesting was she talks about, you know, there's the moth, I forget what it's called, but it, um, it looks on the wings, the pattern looks like owl eyes. Oh yes. Yeah. And she said, what is fascinating about that is that the owl is not a predator of this moth. The owl is a predator of the moth's predator. And so the, the physical manifestation of this web of relationships in the ecosystem, which are two degrees removed, actually is present on the moth. Right. And so there's, there's some sort of inherent, uh, biological knowing in, in the moth that it expresses itself in, in knowing those complex set of relationships, which is mind blowing. That is super mind blowing. I didn't know that at all. Um, the, 
another example in the, the MET is they talk about a, a man with his ink pen. Like you can, you can think in a way typing and writing that you can't just speaking, right? For me to sit here and speak sounds distinctly different for me to sit down and write something as you well know. So again, it's like, okay, this tool augments your mind, right? You're a, you have a different mental capacity behind the pen than you do behind the microphone. So there's a, it's something really fundamental. And I don't, I've talked about it at length with a lot of people, but there seems to be some primacy on relationship and complex systems, you know, where we get these emergent properties as a result of the interrelationships that you don't, you cannot identify in the sum of the parts, so to speak. Um, Yeah. I I read yesterday. uh, I don't know if you follow Ben Hunt's work at all at Epsilon mm -hmm, Theory, but um, he had a great, he had a great um, series of articles. I just read the first one yesterday. um, And he was, he was making the case that narrative is actually as real and alive as you and I, that uh, he used to think that narrative and language was metaphorical and it sort of pointed to these other, you know, the realm of the conceptual realm. Uh Um, But he's saying that now he actually believes that it's, it's almost a physical reality of the system, which does have this um, reflexive, this effect on us and it's now because it's so strongly mediated through things like you know technological platforms social media platforms the news that um it does have these emergent properties but it also it is this sort of like living alive complex um system itself that then is i don't know i i'm like still trying to (laughs) grasp the, the depth of what he was saying but um I liked that concept that the, that the actual metaverse, like that is the metaverse the, mm-hmm. and that it actually is a real and physical and alive part of systems as much as anything else that's biological. No, it's, it's, this is something I've very much been um, studying the past couple of years, a, a lot of credit to Jordan Peterson, which he gets a lot of his um, knowledge from Carl Jung on this topic they call it the mythos. You know, he talks about these nested stories we live within. So right, right. in the Western in Western civilization, we're living in the nested story of Christianity to a large extent. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what your individual beliefs are, what you do on Sunday. It's like you're living in that collective story. And that's kind of like the outermost shell, I guess. And then there's, you know, the company you work for is a story. The home you've created for yourself, you got pictures on the wall and there's like there's stories and they're just nested Mm -hmm. in one another and mutually interacting. Um, It it just seems like a whole new, I call this awakening people to the non-materialist worldview. Mm. It's like, we tend to think it's just atoms and stuff and, you know, the Newtonian clockwork thing. But once you get into the realm of complexity, you know, that's completely blown out of the water. Right. And then when you start to understand, you know, to use the Verveke term, psychotechnology, social institutions, all of these things are just human imagination put to work basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And those tools tend to be more important than real tools in some ways, because they determine, you know, what we're doing every day and how, how we think and who we spend our time with, et cetera. So a lot of rabbit holes there. I want to (laughs) try 
we're still on (laughs) paragraph one of your piece here. It's a great, great, great conversation. But um, so we talked a little bit about value. And then you also make this point that Schrodinger posed a really good question about life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess this is from a 1943 speech he gave where he said, what you wrote, what is life? Schrodinger asked, and his lectures were later compiled into the best-selling book by the same title. This deceivingly simple three-word question has intrigued, had intrigued and baffled scientists for centuries before Schrodinger, and a question which remains unanswered today. It is a very interesting point, back, back to the point of like, where do you draw the line? Like, where is living versus non-living? Um, the best answer I've found, and it's not even a clear answer, but uh, comes from thermodynamics and complexity, actually. This idea of an open system that imports energy but exports entropy, mm-hmm. we could kind of say is alive, but then that begs the next question, like, well, what the hell is entropy and energy for that matter? Um, what Right. You know, a, a, like a Bitcoin mining pool under that definition could be called alive. Bitcoin's alive by that definition. Yeah. A city's alive, you know, Yeah, which gets back to Jeffrey West's work. So it's like, where do you actually, where do we draw the line between organic and inorganic reality? Right. Right. Um, No, I've, I found, so, I mean, I got turned on to this, um, this sort of line of questioning because I read Carl Zimmer's book called Life's Edge. And it's really fantastic if, mm. if people uh, um, go down this rabbit hole, but it was, yeah, it was really interesting for me to learn that there's essentially no scientific consensus on this and mm. that different theories or definitions have been proposed over the years, but there's always some there's always some biological element that confounds the definition. So, you know, whether it's a tardy grade that gets frozen in cryptobiosis for 30 years and shows no signs of metabolism or any other form that we would, you know, reproduction, uh, any of the sort of hallmarks that we would traditionally associate with, with life. Um, and then you, 30 years later, you pour a little water on it and it comes back and it can Mm. actually reproduce, you know, is that, is that organism alive when it's in that cryptobiotic state? Um, and so I've, I found it just, of course, just fascinating to consider this, but then also it did make me think that similarly, and as we kind of talked about at the beginning of this conversation, when you try to peel back the layers of understanding what economic value is, it's Mm -hmm. similarly a very slippery concept where as soon as you feel like you have, as soon as you feel like you have some sort of sufficient definition, there's something that will confound that definition. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's what I was trying to unpack in, in that post, but. Yeah. And there's something very intimately related here between life and value too, right? There's, um, they're different questions clearly, but there's some, because it seems like value tends to be derived from consciousness to some extent and consciousness is an emergent property of life, I guess we might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so these things are all intertwined. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, taking a slight turn here on the concept of what is value, you have a picture in your article of the, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, the Louis Vuitton urban satchel bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is, I actually, Which I don't own, out. by the way. <laughs> 
I tweeted <laughs> this will. out. I, I'd never heard of this before reading your piece. And upon reading it this afternoon, I tweeted it out. Um, it's a $150,000 purse made out of trash, I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found it because I was trying to find the most, you know, I was Googling around for the most egregious luxury goods. And <laughs> when I found it, I was just like, oh, this is perfect because, you know, it's a purse. I mean, if you look at it, it's got a crumpled plastic bottle, a cigarette pack, um, yeah. like gum wrapper, you know, and they put it into a purse and they sell it for 150,000. And I was trying to make the point about Veblen goods and how, you know, price is, um, uh, you know, that, that idea that sometimes price isn't, isn't necessarily, um, about scarcity, even it's, it's yeah. just about the value, the value of the good itself. And the sort of like collective narrative around it yes. is the thing that, drives the price. Yeah. Veblen good is one in which demand increases as price increases. Is that right? Right. Right. So sort of the more expensive it is, the more desirable it is simply because it's expensive. Yeah. So the value quote unquote value from the sat trash satchel bag over here is someone's just signaling, right? They're right. Whatever they're signaling at their position in the hierarchy or perhaps their own internally held values to wear a trash bag. I I shouldn't say trash bag. It's not a trash bag. It's a, it's a purse made of trash. You got to see the picture. If you haven't seen it, just Google urban satchel bag. Um, And you just make this great point that you also mentioned the $3.2 million diamond dog collar where the price of an object can be massively inflated against the value of its utility. So that's a really deep, important point that value is not utility either, which was probably right. the thing we would typically think it is. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, presumably, as you said, in a flood, famine, or apocalypse, trash persons are not very useful. <laughs> I, I doubt they will be. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe it is something I haven't considered. Um, but yeah. And I mean, I think that's why I'm also really, you know, I, because of my anti-monopoly framing too, I, I think a lot about power and that's why I'm also interested in this mm. notion that price might actually, in some cases, be more of a proxy for power, you know, either the mm. power of the buyer. So their economic power, because clearly they have a lot of disposable income they can spend on these things. And they want to signal, you know, that that is a form of power signaling, mm. um, Or, you know, in some cases, I also mentioned the piece, of course, you know, oligopolistic companies that collude to raise the price of pharmaceuticals, as an example, Mm -hmm. where that the price is actually more representative of the market power of the selling firm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's that's something, you know, I want to give more thought to. But I think that there's something there. And it's interesting that, you know, in economics, there's so little mention of power, typically, Mm Um, and, you know, I remember I was reading another book and the author said, you know, power is one of those concepts that the social, um, the social disciplines have covered for millennia, you know, Mm -hmm. political history, sociology. And yet when it comes to economics, there's sort of this gaping hole of, um, of investigation of power, Mm -hmm. unless of course it's monopoly power that's, but in terms of like the dynamics of power asymmetries in markets. And that's where I also think, you know, this idea of um, rational choice theory, I think also is so interesting in its 
avoidance of the idea that market participants don't come to the market as equal participants. You know, mm-hmm. the zip code you're born into, the country you're born into, the abilities, disabilities, the skin color, the gender, you, you know, all of these things have um, a fairly significant um, impact on your ability to participate in markets from the get-go. And so the idea of rational choice really sort of papers over any of these power asymmetries that might be present in normal human interactions. Um, Can you tell me a a bit about rational choice theory? Actually, I'm not too familiar with it. Well, just, just the idea that like, you know, in an exchange, if you and I come together and I, I have a cup and you have a trash bag, you know, and I Mm -hmm. I want to exchange that, um, that the only function that we're considering in that exchange is the, the goods that we want to barter for, or the, um, you know, that we're making rational choices. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is the, the dictum that all economic actors are just super rational, not emotional. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That they're rational actors making, making choices for their own, maximizing their own self-interest in Mm -hmm. every exchange, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, again, I think is just, it completely sort of ignores the majority of human experience where, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if we were talking about Graeber before we started recording, but, you know, in his, in his view, or he says, you know, for most of human history, humans have been told that they're debtors. Well, That's right. where does rational choice theory fit when, you know, you're in a debt relationship and there's an inherent power um, asymmetry between mm-hmm. you and who you might be exchanging with. So, yeah. So I just find it like interesting that there's so little, kind of investigation of the notion of power in economics. Yeah, no, I agreed completely on that. Um, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently too. Um, have you read much Rothbard at all? He wrote, no. um, he wrote man economy and state, which is like his Austrian economic magnum opus. But then there's okay. two books behind it that the publisher didn't allow originally. They're called power and market. They were were disallowed because they were considered to be too controversial, but now you can get it, um, you know, you can buy it online or whatever. And uh, yeah, he, he does a deep dive on the topic and you know, one of the areas. So for instance, I'm trying to write a piece right now about the nature of power, but Mm -hmm. we have to be very clear about the term. The term I think is muddied because we say power people typically think political power, like who's in a position to tell others what to do, position of authority, something like that. Mm. But there's also power in the purely physics sense, which is like the capacity to do work, right? Mm. That's something we very much want to maximize. That's like the, that's the basis to wealth in a lot of ways. That's what we're doing when we trade, right? We, we're cre- increasing the division of labor. So we're increasing our aggregate physical power, effectively, our ability to move goods and services. It's what innovation does, right? It amplifies human labor to create a more powerful outcome. So there seems to be this, the way I'm looking at it right now, and I'm not, this is not fully formed. So (laughs) uh, we want to create social institutions that allow us to maximize our physical power collectively but we want those same institutions to be resistant to political power, right? We don't want them. We don't want insiders to be able to say, twist a public institution for private gain, right? That would be a pretty bad idea. Corruption is what we would call that typically. So yeah, um, it's a dance, you know, I don't know. I think Bitcoin, you know, 
you asked me earlier about Bitcoin. It's like, I think it's a very promising social enterprise and that it enables you to directly monetize energy and then transact that money in a rule set that can't be politically co-opted. So it's a system that like incentivizes us to increase our physical power harnessing, but that's resistant to political power. Um, Sorry, that was kind of a mouthful. I would love to hear your thoughts on power in general too. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That thank you for sharing that. And um, most of, if not all, of my thoughts are <laughs> ill-formed and still forming. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I was intrigued by you sort of focusing in on the physical power element um, and the physical power of power of labor. And I don't think you mean that in the literal sense because you know what is it like eighty four percent of um, S and P value is now intangible. So. Um, but, and yet this is like another dichotomy that I'm interested in, but, you know, we live in this embodied, embodied reality. And mm-hmm. I think we tend to sort of over index on the intangible as it relates to thinking about, especially now thinking about economic value. Um, but yeah, can you describe why you, why you phrased it that way with the physical? Quality? Yeah, I would say even the intangibles, like in the S and P I know, there's a lot of intellectual property, for instance. Um, but these things ultimately ground out in capital, right? You're, you're producing capital of some kind, ultimately. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. You know, a patent, for instance, on whatever device would be considered intellectual property. Mm-hmm. But that patent is not going to have value in the real world unless it can do something, right? Move something or, or create a service that people deem valuable, it ultimately has to create an impact in physical reality. Otherwise, it doesn't tend to be valuable. So something that can't create an impact in physical reality, then what use is it? Um, and I, I guess it does get a little blurry when you look at like art. You know, there's this idea of aesthetic value. Is a painting really like what's the physical power of a painting? Not really much. Um, but people will expend tremendous resources, you know, bidding over one another to get it. So I think there's just this, we could say like the explosion in car ownership or the explosion in people using air travel. Like there's this natural desire in organisms really to be free, to have a lot of options, you know, to be able to move across time and space. Now time, clearly we're all stuck in time, but you can use a piece of capital to accelerate Mm -hmm. you towards your aim in time. So the example I always give is if you have a pair of shoes, a trip from New York to LA is going to take you one set of time, maybe a few months. But if you amplify your labor into a piece of capital, like a car, then you've now been moved nearer in time to your goal. And if you amplify your labor into an airplane, you're even nearer in time to your goal even though the spatial relationship between New York and LA hasn't changed at all. So capital is like this amplifier of human time, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that capital accumulation itself, which is the basis of civilization, right? It's a buffer against uncertainty. It's what we use to satisfy our wants better, faster, cheaper. To create capital requires physical power, ultimately requires physical production. So we need to amplify our physical power through the division of labor, through innovation. Um, and that's what lets us move, you know, better, faster, cheaper in the world. Uh, mm. 
But with all that, kind of getting back to the imagined orders we described earlier, which is like, you could say this is narrative. Basically, there's people fighting over controlling that narrative too, because to control that narrative is to control the production capacity that it enables to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the duality I'm looking at. It's like, there's this political power where someone can like speak a thing into existence, right? If I'm Joe Biden, I can sign an executive order and I can mobilize millions of people to do things at the stroke of a pen. That's political power. Mm-hmm. But physical power is the actual act itself. Like what to actually get into a plane and ignite the ignition and it propel you across the ocean in a few hours, you know, that's physical power. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't do that without the physical power. Right. And an act of creation of some kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's that I, I like that description and I sort of wish it was more representative of how current economic <laughs> systems function <laughs> because, you know, I think that's, that's where, uh, that's where with the finan- financialization of the firm in particular, you see these kind of manipulations of value, which actually in many ways don't have any sort of linear correlation to an exertion of physical power or creativity Mm -hmm. or innovation, you know, and I think like one of the examples I used as well was um, that Apple's operating income uh, Mm -hmm. hasn't changed in six years. And yet the company value has gone up four times. And in part, that's because, you know, they've done $337 billion worth of stock buybacks, uh, which is, you know, essentially just a, I mean, there's, it's just a manipulation of, of, you know, what's available on the market. And so, uh, or I think I also use the example of like Tesla, which actually made more money um, selling Bitcoin and regulatory credits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe, maybe in your mind, the regulatory credits and the, and the Bitcoin are part of this physical power manifestation of, of things flowing. But, um, you know, it's certainly, at least for the average person, they don't think that, Tesla's making its money that way. They think it's making money selling cars to people. Right. Right. Um, And yeah. And so I think like markets are in such a strange place right now where, or even the derivatives market, right. Which has been some estimate it's at like a quadrillion uh, there's quadrillions of, um, of, of like units of value that flow through them. Um, And it's not clear to me that those, that betting on the future is a form of manifesting any kind of, uh, you know, physical power as you're describing it. Right. Yeah. And and just for perspective, that derivatives market is valued at multiples of global GDP. Right. Right. Exactly. It's like, it doesn't even make sense. Right. There's so many, if the whole market collapsed, um, you can't even pay out all the notional value, the contracts that comprise the derivatives right. market because it's about it's bets about the future. So you can have as many bets about the future as you want, which makes it right. so hard to value and all of this. But well, um, even like the idea of like fractional reserve banking, right, which now doesn't exist anymore in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but that idea that you can you know continually fabricate more, more and more sort of yes. money supply, um, you know, without any sort of like inherent tie and i know you know people have different thoughts about that and you need you need you need some ability for the monetary system to expand and um but 
Yeah, it's clear that if we, well, there's a term like growthless uh, asset maximization, which basically right. I think describes the U.S. economy now, which is you don't actually have to, as a company, you don't actually have to grow. You don't have to become more productive. Um, mm. You actually just figure out a convoluted scheme of investment shell companies and, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and moving, basically like moving things around on your balance sheet to be able to uh capture some sort of like theoretical economic value, but there hasn't really been any sort of market exchange, which would tie to that directly. Yes. So I'd like to to drill into this actually. So you mentioned earlier the decoupling of productivity and wages, right? Um, that's a distinctly post 1971 phenomenon. This is something that a lot of Bitcoiners point to as a problem with fiat. You mentioned okay. stock buybacks, yeah. you know, all time high. Um, over a trillion dollars in 2021, all time high. Over a trillion dollars. And they're essentially, there's a lot of perverse incentives here. You know, the other would be executive bonus packages that they're based on earnings per share typically. So you can take shares out of the market and basically manage that metric upward. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing about stock buyback, stock buybacks, that I think is in particular driven by fiat is the idea that the larger and more credit worthy you are, the cheaper you can borrow. So a Mm. lot of these companies will just, they'll borrow very cheaply and they'll use the proceeds to buy back stocks and manage to those earnings targets. But that is a consequence of fiat currency. The reason they have such cheap borrowing costs relative to smaller firms um, is a result of basically the existence of the central bank. Um, There's another issue here too, that, because money's not holding its value over time, it's being inflated that people are basically scurrying into any asset to hedge against inflation. Ultimately, a lot of that is equities. A lot of equities are largely being used as this alternative store value since fiat currency doesn't work. Um, so you get these, you get all these additional buy pressures on equities that wouldn't really exist absent um, a fiat currency implementation. Uh, Have you looked at that much? Have you looked at the relationship between, I guess you could just say post-1971 money in the world and and stock buybacks, equity valuations, et cetera? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think... um, I think I've looked at... I've looked at that and I've also looked at sort of, you know, regulatory changes, which have also incentivized certain behavior in markets. Um, as an example, like the relaxation of the merger guidelines in the eighties, which then mm. prompted a wave of, you know, all these merger, merger waves. Um, it's also interesting, like I do some work with institutional investors and to your point also in, of course, in a low interest rate environment where they're completely starved of yield on the bond side, then they, they're, they, they feel forced to go into riskier and riskier asset mm-hmm. classes. And so you've seen, of course, the equity valuations go up hugely, but also, you know, um, investments in private equity. And mm-hmm. to your point, using a whole lot of cheap debt to load up companies, roll up, you know, roll up industries, um, 70% of PE transactions are add-ons, which means they're, you know, basically doing roll-ups. Um, and then of course that has like significant impacts on other stakeholders. It's bad for workers generally. Mm. Um, you know, it's, you tend to get, I mean, 
you know, these are the headlines that come across my desk all the time, but it's, you know, it's like hospitals that were in private equity controlled uh, or nursing homes that were private equity controlled had 11% higher death rate during COVID because mm. of the, you know, like the bad quality of care and various things. So, yeah, so it is interesting. And um, I, I'm not entirely sure what I think about the kind of fiat money component of the story. Obviously it's a big piece of it. Um, but yeah, you do see how, how all of this has <laughs> really led to this kind of increasing concentrations of value, um, in, you know, in, in like pockets, fewer which, hands. Yeah. yeah, in fewer hands essentially. Um, and, and it's a very difficult problem to figure out because yeah, even the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds and so forth, um, you know, there's a lot, there's even like institutional constraints as to how and why they operate in the ways that they do, which mm -hmm. make it very difficult for them to try to do anything different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. But what, what do you think? I mean, the, yeah, the wages and productivity uh, story, I think is, is very important. I mean, we, sorry, I'll just add one more thing. I think there have been some studies as an example that if we had the competitiveness that we did in the 1960s, that mm -hmm. uh, workers would have earned 6 trillion more over the last few decades. Um, so I do think that the kind of concentrated industries and the way that the, you know, the monopolization of industries and then the monopsonization of labor where you have Walmart in one town mm -hmm. suppressing wages is also, you know, a big part of the story in terms of why workers have lost out in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess my big view on it is that, and I'm very outspoken about this, that I think inflation and taxation are basically systemized forms of theft. Um, and when I say inflation, I have to be very clear. People think price inflation, but I mean, arbitrary expansion of a fiat currency supply under the agus of a legal monopoly of a central bank. So when there's someone that can just render an opinion onto the money supply and expand it arbitrarily, mm -hmm. that is used as a mechanism to, to confiscate wealth from people that are depending on that dollar to hold its value across time. Right. Um, and I don't well, see. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I don't see how it could be anything else, but please go ahead. No, I mean, that's something, and I've spoken to folks, you know, who have held senior positions in central banks and I've never understood the mandate of the central bank, mm -hmm. um, you know, and in particular, the 2% inflation target. Why is that? Why is the 2% inflation target a target at all? Um, and as, as you know, as many econometric sort of arguments as people put forward for it, it just it doesn't make any rational sense to me. Um, and it also seems like, you know, the full employment mandate also is just so inherently disingenuous because you know that capital, I mean, we all know that capital holders are always going to have exerted power over labor uh, and the value of labor. And so on the one hand, you're perfectly happy to inflate asset prices uh, of capital holders. And yet you say that full employment is also your mandate, knowing that this is going to cause inequality. I mean, it's just like, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't take three PhDs in economics to figure out this, this is a bad <laughs> system. It, it does take um, three PhDs to cover it up and 
talk around it though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, that is very true. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, a, a lot of my thinking on this is informed by Mises as well, like particularly his book, Human Action. He makes a point in Human Action, an argument that I can't, um, I can't say right now because it's a bit more complicated than I can pull off the top of my head. But he basically makes a point that it's impossible to index inflation universally. You can't CPI is a it's a total misnomer. You can't have it because right. as as we pointed out here, value like it's in the eye of the beholder, right? It's subjective to the aims of the market actor. Well, so is inflation because mm-hmm. it depends on what you're trying to buy. Like everyone has an inflation coefficient, effectively that's mm-hmm. congruent to their aims. But this idea of one number to rule them all right. for everyone, it's it's like it's not possible. Um, well, same with GDP or any of, the, of these other yes. sort of aggregate measures when you're trying to when you're trying to measure complex systems, like the best you can do is triangulate, right? But yes. you can't actually pinpoint. And I think also back to this tying it back into narrative, what I've found interesting is watching, particularly in this inflationary um environment now where the narrative of inflation is also self-fulfilling because we're now finding mm-hmm. companies who are essentially raising prices because they're using the cover of the inflation narrative and actually their input costs haven't risen at all. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you listen to them on their earnings calls and they talk about it. They just mm-hmm. say that now they basically have market pricing power, right? Where they can, um, they're inflating. So yeah. So, I mean, these things are, as you say, well, I'm paraphrasing what you're saying, but, you know, in a complex system where there's multi- multiple agents exchanging all kinds of different things, yeah, to have one sort of core metric and then to base policy decisions on that core metric mm-hmm. is just incredibly misguided. Yes. And um, I, I went to the Chicago School uh, of Economics they call it the, the money church. I think one of the towers there where it's like the, you know, number one, uh, I guess forum for Keynesian thinking about central banking in the world. I went with Eric Weinstein and he gave this compelling argument about how CPI is totally bogus and everything they're building on top of CPI is equally bogus. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, and it, you know, further to your point, like, okay, why 2% the point of an economy actually is price deflation. <laughs> You right. want prices you so. to go down over time right. that, that equates to lower cost of living for everyone, which we could also say is a higher standard of living because you right. can live to a higher standard on, on equal purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, my study of government like it because it like reduces the debt burden. Exactly. I don't know. It, it's, is it's, it's, the, it is, is it's revenue. <laughs> it's revenue for the government. Right. Like who doesn't want to print their own money? Mm -hmm. Who wouldn't want to print their own money? Well, then I can just borrow whatever I want and pay you in my freshly printed money and move on. So Mm -hmm. um, I think there's some really deep uh, immoral reasons, even that the monopoly on violence and the monopoly on money tend to go hand in hand all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the, the topic of full employment is kind of a silly one. Because when you implement a minimum wage, you're guaranteeing unemployment, right? You're basically putting a price. Is it a price floor, I guess? So you're creating labor shortages. 
where there are people that would be hired for a job. There are people, there are employers that would hire and willing employees for jobs at a rate below the minimum wage that will not contract to work together because of this legal intervention called the minimum wage. So, Mm. um, and Mises argument here was the only way to ever have full unemployment is to have no government intervention whatsoever in the labor market. Um, Now that might be a bit of a strong, strong line because I know, and you've talked about some of this in your work, uh, child labor laws and things like this, where there have been some positive advancements due to intervention of some kind. Um, Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm more sympathetic to, you know, to collective agreements like the minimum wage, because again, back to the PowerPoint, I think, um, sure, there may be parties that could contract or that would contract. uh But, um, you know, like, I don't want to live in a world where someone in Bangladesh gets paid a dollar an hour to work for 12 hours straight because that's the only option that they have. And that, you know, they're in in a position of relatively little power. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, these are complicated questions, but. Yeah, certainly. Um, I just think you agreed with that point, like. And I don't know entirely the proper role of regulation. I tend toward the the extreme libertarian side where I think the less regulation, the better. Right. Um, but I'm not, again, complicated question. I don't have all the answers. But what I would say is like, so long as there is a minimum wage, you can never have, never expect to conquer unemployment when you have a minimum wage because like you're creating unemployment. It's institutional mm-hmm. unemployment. It's the same thing as creating a price floor in any other market, right? If I if I said, as a government, um, as a government, if you said you can't sell a car below forty thousand dollars, well, that's going to create problems in the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be dislocations in the market. Um, yeah. So, what do you think about the concept of um, demurrage, like where you would? I'm just thinking. I was thinking about this today um, and I was listening to a talk someone was giving about the, I think it was Warhol, the example in Germany where they, um, they produce these notes that basically uh, like deflated in value over time. And you, it was basically to kind of increase the velocity of money. Um, and, and they found that it was very effective uh, in that particular instance. Um, and I've been thinking about this as a, because the velocity of money, at least how it's measured currently, you know, has been declining for, I don't know, the past 10 years, I think. Um, And it strikes me that like, this is, again, this is like a very (laughs) ill-formed concept, (laughs) but I was like, instead of a wealth tax, what if you, I don't know, what if you instituted some kind of like demurrage on, on the assets on particular asset types or classes. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of interested you, in that idea. Can you unpack Demirage for me? Cause I'm not, I think I, I don't have it fully formed in my mind. So um, it basically would be in the, in the case of um, the Warble example, they printed notes that had, you had to go and I think pay Every two weeks, was it, or two months, you had to go and basically like pay a 
pay a little bit to kind of um, reinstate the, the bill. And so it was a way of deflating the value over time. So you were incentivized uh, to actually like spend it rather than, mm. rather than keep it. And so it was a way of trying to, um, a way of trying to encourage, you know, the velocity of money. Um, Is that and- mechanically the same as inflation as far as just printing new units of currency to diminish purchasing power? Is it? So they weren't, well, I mean, in this case, um, yeah, that's a good question. Were they printing it or did they just institute it on the notes that were in existence? I think in my, in the way that I'm thinking about it, you're not necessarily adding more money supply. You're just applying it to what, what is already there. Um, and, and then they, you know, they basically were showing that they had created all of this value. It, It was like a multiplier of value in a sense, because, because the velocity had increased to such a degree, um, where all of a sudden, like everyone immediately paid their taxes and, you know, and then it was like going back out the door. And so there was this, this, um, increase kind of to your point about the going from New York to San Francisco and, you know, uh, that, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in this idea, but as I said, it's, yeah, it's the first, um, I've heard of that particular instance, but it sounds like it's almost like a tax on currency then. Yeah. It was like a form of a tax essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. A couple of things. One, um, again, Mises informed me on this, the velocity of money. Um, There's some complications there. I think it's kind of a plug figure and I don't know it's something we want to manage toward necessarily. I think it's better to manage and this is completely antithetical to the Keynesian school where they're trying to induce consumption. I actually mm-hmm. think savings is more important that, you know, economic actors having savings is what uh, spurs the investment process. And it also gives them because the markets are inherently volatile. We know that, but it actually gives them the wherewithal to survive volatility because you have savings, right? You have a net equity position. Um, as opposed to a net debt position that fiat currency incentivizes, right? If your money's diminishing over time, you're incentivized to borrow and spend. If your Mm -hmm. money's appreciating over time, then you're incentivized to save. Uh, Mm -hmm. One fragilizes the economy. The other, you know, makes the economy anti-fragile or at least robust. Um, So I don't know if it sounds like uh, the term demiurge, I think if I'm saying that correctly, if it's mm-hmm. a tax, I'm probably against it because I think taxation is a bad thing. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. yeah, I'm just, I don't know. I'm Again, I'm, I'm like playing with concepts here, but um, yeah. you know, I'm thinking, thinking about how in natural systems, thermodynamically, this idea of um, dissipation-driven adaptation mm-hmm. where you know, complex systems form, it was the way that you described life earlier, right? Where Mm -hmm. they take in energy and then dissipate entropy, but it's, um, and, and we know that in natural systems, it's heat and kind of curious posing this question to myself, what is it in economic systems that is trying to dissipate? Um, I don't think it's money because for many reasons, you know, money is a proxy for something else. Um, but it 
it does, you know, it does feel at least in the current sort of iteration of our monetary systems, you know, I guess the negative side of saving is hoarding <laughs> and there's certainly a lot of that happening. Um, and so, yeah, where do you draw the line there? That's something I get hung up on too, because that's another Keynesian argument. It's like, we have to debase the currency so people don't hoard money. I'm like, okay, where do you draw the line between savings and hoarding? Cause again, that's another value yeah. judgment. Yes. That's an incredibly hard question. I've asked my whole life and I don't know, <laughs> just on a sort of personal moral level, it's very hard to know. Um, and it is very relative because we always, you know, we, we make those judgment calls based on who we associate with um, yes. and we tend to be upwards oriented versus downwards oriented. And, right. Well, the other thing um, about that, so at least in a hard money world, if you're hoarding, say we're all on gold or Bitcoin, if you're hoarding money to the point that you're taking away invested, investable capital from the marketplace, then that's actually going to put downward pressure on the purchasing power of money. So at some point, because the purchasing power of a hard money is only going to increase if investment and productivity are expanding. Right. If so much capital is being pulled out of the market that it's all being hoarded in money, well, eventually that's going to put downward pressure on the purchasing power of money, which would then induce you to invest. Right now, all of a sudden, my hard money would not be appreciating year over year. It would be depreciating. And then me as a saver or a hoarder, depending on your perspective, um, I would have that incentive to put some of that capital to work. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm going back to Graeber here where he talks about how at least in the anthropological record, there's been all these uh, instances of, you know, creditors essentially getting fabulously wealthy mm -hmm. um, and then the, the debt burden becoming so civil, civilizationally constraining mm -hmm. um, that eventually there's some sort of uprising and, and it's always about canceling the debt ledgers. And then there's, yeah. and then, and then they actually do a debt jubilee. And so there's, um, so at least, at least it seems in history that there's like plenty of examples where you actually need some sort of like direct intervention to motivate the kind of resetting of the of the scales in that way versus it just sort of naturally occurring as a as a product of the um, you know the deflationary kind of idea that you're talking about. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and that's again very complicated because I'd wonder to what extent are those debtors being coerced, right? Like if you just think of um, like serfdom essentially, right? Weren't they basically just forced to work for their own sustenance and then all the profits were taken by the Lord. Right, um, right. So that's not, you know, in a pure libertarian sense, that's not a free market. That's the opposite. That's someone being right. coerced into a debtor position. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, presumably at some point when those debt, burdens become unmanageable, unbearable, even that people rise up, you know, enough people get mad enough. Um, they respond to the coercion with coercion. And we've been, and you talked later about mimetic desire. Maybe that's not this piece, but another one I've been reading Gerard's book, things hidden since the foundation of the world. Did you read that one as well? Or did you just, no, I haven't yet. Very complicated book. Um, but this idea of mimetics is really, really interesting too, because I don't know, we've been like trapped in these cycles historically, where like one group coerces another, and then that group 
granted the group's changing over time clearly, but that cohort that identifies itself as the coerced group rises up against the coercing group, but then they, you know, it flips and then all of a sudden they're doing the coercing and then it, the cycle mm-hmm. repeats. And it's like, how do we break out of this insanity as a species? Yeah. I mean, another core question of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting too, because I read um, last year, I read Jane Jacobs, the nature of economies, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. And um, you know, she talks about there's, there's these two core evolutionary um, like parallel realities. And we tend to focus on the competition um, mm-hmm. as the kind of dominant one, but she says actually habitat maintenance is, the other like critically important um, mm-hmm. evolutionary um, I'm not like thinking of the, the right word here, but um, incentive perhaps. Uh-huh. And yeah, I think, I think that's, that just feels so normal <laughs> when we think about it in the sense that like, you know, we can't um, we seem to have this, this overarching, perpetual drive towards um, these feedback loops that are exponential that aggregate negative outcomes over time. So we have this like maladaptive system. And yet the, I mean, the thing that we should be sort of managing for is this habitat maintenance, not only of our ecological systems, but also, you know, how do you ensure that there's this, these kind of, I don't know. I mean, I know, I know you don't like guardrails, but you know, what, <laughs> what would it take to, um, to like try to scaffold the incentive of the systems within the kind of thresholds that are inherent in the system where like mm. we just need to manage for these things. And I don't know if, I guess I have a question of whether the systems, the inherent system properties don't allow for that kind of intervention and management um and whether we're just sort of like we just have to keep riding out these waves um in their perpetual cycling or whether we can get to a point where we understand the dynamics of the system well enough to be able to actually you know scaffold something that would create different outcomes and not have to go through the sort of perpetual waves that we've been discussing yeah, it's a, whether it's like you know domination and partnership um, that um, so that Will Durant talks about, or you know these sort uh, yeah. of cyclical um, patterns. Yeah, I think uh, Durant and his wife Ariel they called it the systole and diastole of human history. This centralization then decentralization back and forth, right. but but the overall trend is towards decentralization. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is the, the question, right? Like, how do we, (laughs) how do we all just get along? Um, Mm. I, I mean, the crux of my thinking now is really on this topic of property rights, like to be able to go into the world. Here's, here's a thought experiment again, ill-formed. So bear with me. If we're all just hypothetically in this world where we're all invulnerable, like we can't hurt each other physically. Mm. We can't steal from one another. This is very hypothetical because I don't, I can't 
think of how this could actually be implemented, but just hypothetically, mm-hmm. we still die of old age. So we still have scarce lives. We have scarce time, but we can't kill one another and we can't steal from one another. So we still face scarcity because we have finite lives. Mm-hmm. Um, in that world though, there's only one wealth acquisition strategy and that is making as opposed to taking, right? Taking would be stealing from someone or coercing someone to be your slave or whatever. Well, if those right. options are off the table, the only, the only way to create wealth then is to make, to do something, right? To do, provide a good or service that other people want and are willing to pay you for. Mm-hmm. So that hypothetical world, I equate with this other hypothetical world of inviolable property, basically. It's like, you can't steal people's property And if we consider that we are each our own most personal property, like we each own ourselves, if you can't hurt me, then you can't violate my property. So my thinking is the more clearly we can never get to a world where property is inviolable, like we can never be that hypothetical uh, world that is created. But what we can do is make property more expensive to violate or more difficult to violate. And that would move us further along the spectrum towards that world where people are incentivized into making rather than taking. Um, and that's why I think Bitcoin is super important because it's, you know, you can't violate its supply via inflation. That's one of its core features. Um, and it's really hard to steal Bitcoin. You can't, even if you pass a law, you know, if you pull an executive order 6102, like they did in 1933 with gold, give me all your gold or go to jail. Well, it's a lot harder to enforce with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I've been accused of this being like a libertarian fantasy, but I think it's a pretty sound thought experiment. <laughs> Just make property really hard to violate. And then all of a sudden you've, you've shifted everyone's incentives towards making and away from taking. Yeah. The question that comes up for me is, is the ideal, if we're painting ideal worlds here, mm-hmm. is the ideal world where everyone has has property that, that you can't violate um, under their sort of like personal ownership, or is it some version of a commons where we're each in a micro treaty with the land or whatever the asset is, um, and where there's a I guess it's a more of an indigenous way of thinking about it, the sort of seven generations where mm. there's this idea that, um, you know, you're sort of only stewarding uh, for for future generations versus owning it outright for your own personal use. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I'm more drawn to that ideal world personally, but I also mm. don't know. I don't know what that looks like, who govern, you know, how, how is the common governed? Yeah. That's the, the tricky part is the implementation because every time we have the commons, whoever's in charge of administering the commons ends up corrupting that to their own gain, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what? But isn't that sort of the promise of Bitcoin and other, you know, other sort of um, DeFi or I don't know, whatever, uh, like DAOs, you know, these sorts of things that that um, that now we're forming these experimentation vehicles where we're, you know, we're trying to understand what that might look and feel like to have different types of governance. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, the emergence of things like smart contracts give us new options with 
new governance models, um, which is great, right? We need more experimentation there. That's how we figure things out. Um, I, I will say that I'm very much focused on just Bitcoin. I think separating money and state as like the really big first step that's necessary for governments to have incentives to be accountable to the preferences of citizens. Whereas right now, you know, you're just a monopoly on violence and money. Like, why do you care? And I'm not, this is not black or white. Clearly in democracy, there's some short-term incentive to care about what you're, um, the voting population thinks about you. Um, but in a longer time horizon, uh, I don't think the incentives are properly aligned. There's a great book on this by Hoppe called democracy, the God that failed. Mm. Um, and I could sum it up in a quote that I read that was, uh, every public auction is an advanced looting of public goods. So you put these people into positions of power, they make deals to make themselves money, right? You go look yeah. at, there's a great Twitter account on this, the Nancy Pelosi portfolio tracker. Oh, <laughs> and she's just completely, she's outperformed every hedge fund, every, you know, she's just a crazy stellar performer. Wonder how, right? I mean, isn't right. she a full-time politician? How did she get so good at playing the options market. Well, it turns out, you know, they're playing that inside information um, that they're involved with. So there was also a a fund that called Strategus where um, they had like a lobbying portfolio where if you just invested in the companies that did the most lobbying, you would have Mm. outperformed the SP, you know, multiple times over. (laughs) So yeah, 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 totally. So I think, Uh, I mean, there's something... uh, you go far enough down the libertarian rabbit hole and you start to think that the problem is government itself. Like you need, you at least need a government that has where citizens have options to go elsewhere. So if I don't like the service I'm being given in a certain jurisdiction, I should have the option as a free market actor to leave, right. To go get services somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not, there are some options today, but they're not, you can't go to an economy with no central bank. That's not an mm-hmm. option. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have more than a $2 million net worth in the US, you can't leave without paying an exit tax. Mm-hmm. So that's not good. Um, that means you can't say no as a customer. So that's that's a coercive exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I guess I'm showing my true colors here a bit. I'm very much anti-state well, recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. Um, you might actually like Graver's new book, which I've just started, but uh, he talks about that, that actually one of the interesting early, so it's posthumanist, obviously, because mm-hmm. he's passed away, but um, he makes the point that uh, that in, that many like indigenous cultures in North America, when, when Europeans started colonizing, that they, that a lot of their thinking actually influenced the enlightenment because mm-hmm. um one of the things that they regularly um, that they regularly sort of did and cherished was also this idea of freedom of movement and that mm. um, they did have governance structures, but the person who was in charge often, and this isn't, I'm not like, this isn't a pan-Indigenous and they weren't all the same, but um, as a general rule that if you didn't like 
you know, what your tribe leader was doing or something, you were completely free to go elsewhere. And also um, they couldn't, they couldn't coerce or mandate you into doing certain things um, that you were sort of free to obey or disobey (laughs) as you, Mm. as you desired. And that this kind of notion of individual autonomy and liberty wasn't actually a, um, it wasn't really a conception in a lot of European thinking because they were still sort of so hungover from mm-hmm. prior, um, you know, the rule of nobles and, and various things, mm-hmm. middle ages that, that it actually took interaction with a completely different system to then foster some of the ideas that we now think were born actually uh, in European enlightenment. So yeah. that's a really, yeah, I found that a really interesting um thought but uh hey everybody as you've no doubt learned by watching this show bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century and one of the most important companies in bitcoin today is nidig nidig's mission is to get bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible one of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, Whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. I've kind of been just forever intrigued by this notion that in crypto communities that trustless systems are the answer um, Mm. and that you know, and that smart contracts and such facilitate these, these sort of trustless interactions. Um, And I guess, well, I guess before I sort of say what I think about that, I'm curious to know what you, how you interpret that. Yeah. So I could start here with the work of Nick Zabo. Um, He's a big thinker behind he was writing about smart contracts and crypto in like the 90s. So he's way ahead of his time, to say the least. Uh, he describes money as a trust-minimized asset, actually. So it's the asset you can hold that is maximally resistant or immune to the opinions of others. So you know you can hold physical gold, for instance, in a safe. And it's like, no, no one can pass a law no one can really render an opinion that can cause the value of gold as money to deviate from its historical norm. I mean, somewhat at the margins, but not really, right? It's a global shelling point, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important because you're you're going into the market, taking a lot of risk, trying to you know be an entrepreneur, satisfy wants, better, faster, cheaper. But as a fun- to be a functional entrepreneur, you need a place to store that that's immune to risk, not immune, but resistant to risk, resistant to market risk. Well, that's what gold and money was. It's like a really good tool for savings. Um, the other thing here I'll say about trust 
is if you can incentivize honesty, then you can just trust individual self-interest, right? This is kind of like Adam Smith's view of capitalism. What does he say? It's not the baker's goodwill that causes him to deliver the bread. It's his, you know, uh, concern for his own self-interest. If you know that someone's incentivized to behave honestly, then I don't need to trust that person. I can just trust their Darwinian self-interest. And so I think that's a much stronger assurance in performance. Um, So to tie that into crypto a little bit, um, this is kind of what is bootstrapping Bitcoin in a way. It's like, it's optimized for the self-interest of holders. So your incentive is to just save in it over time. Mm -hmm. And that's really, it creates an alignment of incentives where if I pursue my individual self-interest in saving in Bitcoin, I'm actually creating a collective benefit too, right? Which is a, the, the bootstrapping of this savings vehicle that no one else can undermine, you know, that's valuable for other people too, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, but when you get further off into crypto land where it's like, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations and all of that, I think there's some, there's theoretically some promise there, but it's all theoretical at this point. Um, I look forward to seeing more experimentation, but I don't think we can say anything definitively about it yet. Yeah, it's interesting. So I referenced my friend Katrine's book, The Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner. And mm-hmm. um, I, her, I mean, the sort of core thesis is that actually Smith was a bachelor who lived at home with his mom until um, she died. And that while he was sitting around writing about man's economic self-interest, she was sort of... Um, very selflessly cooking him dinner and doing his laundry and, uh, you know, and so I think, I think there's something there. Um, I also have this theory that trust and I don't, you know, I don't know if this is true or not. It is a theory, but I have this theory that trust is sort of like, can be neither created nor destroyed. Like there might be some sort of inherent amount of trust, um, which, is the kind of pro-social um, liquid, or this isn't the right analogy, but it's the sort of, it's like the pro-social undercurrent, which actually allows human society to function um, in everyday sort of small interactions. And whether that's, you know, I'm always it sounds silly, but I've always thought that four-way stops are such a great example of this where there's, you know, we've sort of, no one's compelling us to stop at the four-way stop, but we sort of do because we trust that other people are going to stop. And, um, and, and so I guess it's always kind of struck me as strange that there's this sort of idealism around the trustlessness being a core component of what is required to facilitate, um, these new forms of exchange or new forms of value exchange. Yeah. Because to me, it feels as though actually, even if the, even if you require less trust at the point of transaction because of the smart contract, it's it, in my mind, the trust just manifests somewhere else. So the trust might manifest in the developers who have created the smart contract or, um, or the network that, you know, now, 
I trust that this Bitcoin is going to hold its value over time because of the collective story and project that I'm mm-hmm. engaging engaging with. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I was curious to get your thoughts on that because it seems to me trust is such a core component of just how systems function in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I think capitalism is at least in its current, or at least we could say sort of global exchange is, I think every single day there are, there's a huge amount of trust that, um, that is, that is sort of facilitating that type of exchange. Agreed. There definitely, there definitely is, especially in the web of counterparties in the financial system, you know, there's a lot of trust there and and reputation matters a lot and all of that. I think there might be one fundamental difference here. Again, we're sort of in the theoretical space right now because smart contracts haven't proven themselves super commercially viable and scalable, although they work in limited instances, they haven't been fully implemented, let's say globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your point, like, okay, instead of needing to trust the individual, the trust would just go somewhere else. You're right. Like if, if, if we have a contract between us, I can trust you as an individual but the piece of paper itself doesn't, it formalizes our agreement and makes sure that we're aligned. But backing that is not the piece of paper, really. It's like, because it's in the shadow of the law, right? If we, mm-hmm. if you don't perform to the contract, I'll right. go over here and then we'll have problems, whatever. Right. With a smart contract, it's slightly different because instead of needing to trust the counterparty or trust the piece of paper in the shadow of the law or coercion, you can actually inspect the code yourself, right? You could say, is this code, and I'm not saying anyone could do this, but it's at least possible. You can audit, you could have the code audited, then you're trusting the auditor, of course, all of that. But you get this degree of veracity that you can't get in just analog paper contract world, where you can just kind of trust the software and the mathematics that they're going to do what they represent to do, because, you know, nothing is hidden. Basically, it's all it's all observable. Whether or not you're qualified to observe it, clearly a lot of us aren't, but it can at least be done. Um, right. So yeah, I think trust is, and there's a deeper philosophical thing here too, where, um, you know, again, Mises, all action is speculative. Any action you take, you don't know what outcome you're going to create. Mm-hmm. Even when you take a step, you're like, you're trusting that your leg's going to work, right? You don't know, could give right. out at any time. Right. Um, <laughs> But between people, the other thing about that, I don't think trust scales really well. You know, like it works to the point of Adam Smith. We're all communists in our household, right? Like, I'm not going to charge my daughter for breakfast tomorrow. Like, I'm going to just give her the food because I, I love her and all that. But when you scale up human society and organization where we're very distant from one another, I don't think the trust or compassion they kind of go hand in hand a little bit. If you have compassion, well, maybe not hand in hand, but anyways, scratch that. It just doesn't, you can't just depend on trust, right? We need incentives. We need systems. We need rules of some kind. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you don't, then you're creating this game theoretic situation where if everyone just trusted each other, 
the incentives to violate trust would be crazy high because you could be the one yeah, guy that yeah, broke no, trust. For sure. and, yeah. For sure. And I don't, I don't think I'm necessarily framing it that way either, but I think um, even back to that idea of the nested narratives or nested stories where mm. there's also, I mean, maybe it's, maybe there's a difference between sort of conscious trust and unconscious trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's clearly like a trusting or at least like an ascension to the, to the narratives by which we operate and which govern, govern our, our yes. lives. And so I think in many ways, those, those meta narratives do scale <laughs> very well mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of collective trust placed in those meta narratives. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's just a, just a concept I'm playing with that I think. No, I agree. I, which something you're pointing to here, which is again, this, the conversation I had with Verveke was super enlightening for me. He talks about this idea that we all go out into the world every day. And if you live in a city mm-hmm. and you, we get along with strangers, you know, exactly. like that's yeah. not normal. We, we've created that meta narrative, this nested narrative or whatever, that we can just implicitly trust most strangers. You know, you go into a, a movie theater, everyone just sits and faces the screen and you're not too worried about someone stabbing you in the back. You know, I guess it's always a risk, but, mm-hmm. um, so there's this idea that, yeah, we start to place some trust in the narrative and we kind of trust in, I guess, structure society in a way that we trust individuals to follow their self-interest within that narrative. So you're kind of you're kind of trying to align, I guess, individual self-interest with the collective in a way. And that seems to be kind of gets back to this power thing where it's like we all need each other to get wealthy, frankly. That's trade and innovation. But we need to cooperate in a way that can't be co-opted by some political attack vector. Um so I, you know, I don't know. I think. There's another weird thing here too, that the harder things are to steal, like I hold a lot of wealth in Bitcoin. That's just in a geographically distributed multi-sig. So someone could break into my house. They're not going to get my Bitcoin. Something about that makes it a lot easier to trust people. If you just imagine everyone had their wealth in this uncrackable safe, well, then you could trust people a lot more easily because there wouldn't be as much of a, an incentive to steal or violate that trust. So there's some like, uh, there's something about turning that incentive dial, you know, that if, it, if it's really hard to steal your property or violate your property, then all of a sudden it's really easy to trust people. Cause it's like, what are they going to do to you? <laughs> They're going to beat you up and not get anything from it. Whereas if all my money's buried in my yard in gold and you know where that is, well, there's a big incentive for you to come beat me up and dig up my gold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just a few like thoughts. I don't know. It's really perfect. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's also, I mean, yeah, it's, it's also interesting again to sort of bring in the concept of ecological thresholds where, you know, let's say there's, let's say, I don't know, ecological systems start failing in a massive way and all of a sudden water becomes the most precious resource. Um, and Bitcoin's value actually completely disappears because nobody cares about your Bitcoin mm-hmm. safe, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, they care about yeah. meeting their immediate needs. Um, 
And so in a way too, you're also trusting, you know, like, I guess, yeah, in that instance, you're also trusting that there's a continuation of life as we know it today, that is going to be true in the future, which will render the value that you've captured mm-hmm. in that particular asset, um, you know, to hold over time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I also think just going back to, I was reflecting when you were talking about the notion of kind of individual, you know, maximizing our own individual interest, which then also collect, you know, has a collective benefit because I don't want to get stabbed. So therefore I'm not going to stab you. Um, but also, you know, I wonder, I, it's sort of a chicken and an egg where it's, is that the impulse that's stronger or is there also a notion of collective, um, collective benefit, which then sort of like the habitat maintenance versus competition thing. Like, you know, I, I also don't want to go out and stab you because I know that then if we all start to do that, then like we collectively destroy the capacity that we, that we have as a, as a human family to sort of do anything else. So there's, and it, and it actually lessens our species survival. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's also, there's also this kind of evolutionary, you know, and they've all the anthropologists have done studies about that too, around, you know, the pro sociability and how, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in different animal different animal cultures where, um, the collective behavior is also like an evolutionary trait to keep Mm -hmm. them, you know? So, yeah. So I think, I don't know. I just tend to think that sometimes we over index on the notion of individual, you know, individual rational interest, um, which perhaps is quite a modern concept in some, some ways. Yeah. Um, it very much is. And there's this other book I read recently, The Discovery of Freedom. And it makes the point that all early societies were communist societies, effectively, right? There's there's the big guy that ha- he's basically the state or, you know, doesn't have to be one guy. It could be a few guys, typically guys, though. They're the monopolists on violence. They also defend that society. Um. And then so long as there's peace and people are being productive and trading and creating wealth, they get paid a tax of some kind. And that was it. That's how we had society for a long, long, long time. Um, But there's something about post-enlightenment, which a lot of this, I think, even like capitalism itself, at least as I've, I've heard described, the Protestant work ethic the idea of sowing before reaping, you know, and, and living below your means and accumulating savings. This was something that became kind of the kernel of capitalism. So maybe we, we have changed our software update to be more individualistic and less communistic over time. And that sounds bad. It's like, oh man, now the collective is going to suffer, but the collective has not suffered at all. Like, look what we've done over the past 250 years. Um, I don't, you know, GDP per capita or wealth per capita or whatever metric you choose, it's absolutely exploded post what 1750 industrial revolution, something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird, it's just a strange, almost counterintuitive thing by optimizing 
sound rules for the individual that you create this collective emergent um, phenomenon of, of unparalleled wealth creation, which is great, right? Cause that then if there's more wealth, well, there's less to fight over. And even better if the property rights in that wealth are really hard to break, then there's mm-hmm. like almost nothing to fight over because you can't even steal the wealth if you win the fight. Right. So, yeah, I guess I just wonder again, how much of this is, is like narrative function where we've collectively ascribed to this myth of sort of, you know, that Adam Smith and the invisible hand and the, all of this. And, and so that's the lens through which we view and sort of periodize the last, you know, couple hundred years mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, seeing it just seeing it through um the lens of of something else that is more more collective Mm. what do you think about actually implementing that though because it seems like even when you have i'm thinking of the marxist credo right from each according to their ability to each according to their need the beautiful utopian ideal if we could all just actually carry that out, we would have a beautiful world, right? People would just, the people that could work would work and the people that couldn't work would receive and we'd all be great. Mm-hmm. But the actual implementation of that created its precise opposite mm-hmm. in my view, because there were people in the position of power ultimately mm-hmm. and power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. So how, even if, how do you look at that? If we had this, even if we were given the perfect collective schematic, how do we implement that given human nature? (laughs) Hang on, let me get out my notes. Um, (laughs) um, I don't mean mean to throw it like a stumbling block. I actually stumble on this myself. It's like, even if we had it, who would run it? What I'm trying to express is not, I think what I am trying to express is that even today, even with our systems as sort of dysfunctional as they are, that I don't know that the through line narrative is the fact that we all have maximized our own interest and therefore this is what we've collectively produced. I think, like, I think the through line narrative is actually that we've been incredibly cooperative and more cooperative than we have been competitive in many ways. And that actually the very fact that we can build such complex systems and dynamics and all of that is a testament to the fact of, to the sort of more true evolutionary component of pro-sociability within Mm -hmm. the human spirit than its opposite. So I think that's what I'm trying to argue and that, that actually the narrative of the, the overemphasis on the kind of individualism um, I think in a way like acts, acts as a constraint on our imagination of what's possible mm. um, potentially. And yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about the idea that if we could, if, if we could exist in a world where our wealth was not stealable, I don't know that that solves the problems if the wealth is still highly unequally distributed. Um, and because I think then I might, even if I may not be able to steal your wealth, (laughs) I just resent you 
and I want to come kill you anyways, just because I resent <laughs> you, you know? Um, so yeah. So I, I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah. A couple of things here. One, I would say, I agree with you. First of all, that we overemphasize competition relative to cooperation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're both important, but I think cooperation is more pervasive and that's just, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Your day-to-day life experience. Like how, how many times are you in a physical fight versus how many times you're just having a conversation with someone like life right. tends to be vastly cooperative, at least today. Like I don't, you know, go back in history mm-hmm. and a lot of different instances. Um, so I don't think so cooperation agreed on that. I don't think self-interest and cooperation are mutually exclusive either. Like I typically think cooperation is mm-hmm. often in your self-interest. Right, right. And that's probably what I'm trying to get at with this property thing. It's like, if you can't steal the property, then it's actually much more in your self-interest to be cooperative. Um, now you could still resent the individual, right? If you're lower on the socioeconomic hierarchy, you could resent someone that had more wealth. Mm-hmm. Um but I guess the point I would make here is that it's been in those regimes with strong property rights that the most wealth has been created. The most people have been lifted out of poverty. So even the person at the bottom of the socioeconomic hierarchy today is way better off than even the person highest on the socioeconomic hierarchy, what, 300 years ago? right in terms of medicine and food and all the things like it's the the tide has lifted all ships so i don't think it would you can fix the resentment thing but at least you'd be in an environment that's creating the most aggregate wealth um and as we understand wealth yeah well there's another great question what is wealth mm-hmm, right I, i'm wrestling with it right now um the book i mentioned to you the origin of wealth i don't want to ruin it for you maybe i shouldn't say i was going to say what his conclusion is but i don't actually agree with his conclusion. Uh, i'm just paraphrasing from memory here but he makes the point that it's knowledge fit for action so like the smarter we are the more knowledge we accumulate as a species the wealthier we are i agree with that to an extent but Rothbard makes his great counter argument, which is not technically a counter argument because he wrote this 40 years ago before this book was ever written. But if you took, you know, the smartest people in the world and you deposited them on a desert island and they had, and you sent with them all the books, the internet, all the knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Super highly educated, super capable, trained, skilled, access to all the libraries across all history, would they be wealthy? Mm. like well kind of they have the knowledge to start to rebuild all the things but if you think about like if they were doctors someone you know breaks their arm and needs some kind of emergency surgery the knowledge is not too useful on that desert island like you need the capital stocks you need the hospital you need the medicine you need the stuff so Mm -hmm. there's i think wealth and i'm really open to suggestions on this is somehow a composite of like knowledge and time and energy. Like we have to take that knowledge and then manifest it in reality, basically. And that takes time and energy. Mm. Um, so I guess in a nutshell, you could say wealth is like capital plus knowledge, something like that. Yeah. I mean, of course, all of this is 
just semantics, right? Because to our earlier conversation, language is um, we're so hampered by by language and trying to express the inexpressible. But mm -hmm. I would have thought that given how important freedom is to you that that would factor into your definition of wealth in some way in a more philosophical way property i consider to be a manifestation of freedom so life liberty property familiar mm -hmm. with that it's like the basis of natural law uh life i consider to be your future freedom so if someone takes your life you know they've killed you they've basically robbed you of your future freedom if someone takes your liberty, they've effectively imprisoned you or reduced your options somehow. So they've taken your present freedom effectively. Mm -hmm. And then I view property as a fruit of your past freedom. So it's like, what have you done? You've gone into the world. You've taken some action. If you've created value for others, then presumably you've earned some value. Mm -hmm. And if you're storing that in whatever medium or assets, the relationship between you and that asset, that is property. That's what the state is here to, to preserve, right? We, you could say, you could think you own your house, but you technically own your house at the leisure of the state because <laughs> you have a contractual right in that house and at home. But at any time, if, you know, Stalin or his equivalent takes office, then you probably don't own that house anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, your intuition is correct. Um, I do consider property a manifestation of past freedom, but I typically have to unpack that term because most people think property is the thing. They think it's the asset. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it's the relationship between owner and asset rather than the asset itself. Yeah, I think where, thank you for drawing that that connection um i think where i i i settled in as you were speaking there was around the idea that um that value value creation and who are the value creators and uh you know this idea that that only if you can provide some sort of value to you know, the marketplace that mm -hmm. that is the only way of accumulating assets or, um, and yeah, there's something in there around, you know, I think that there's a question around human dignity and human value outside of production mm -hmm. that I think is really, um, important. And I don't think that we, have an adequate way of capturing that and how we understand value creation and markets today. I agree with that. Um, I think there's things that markets can't answer or do. Um, you know, one is the idea of someone that's just indigent. They just can't work, can't provide for themselves for whatever reason. It's like, well, market's not really going to solve their problems because they can't mm -hmm. render labor if they don't have any wealth. So there's definitely a role for, you know, selflessness and charity and these things. But I think, um, I just think it needs to be voluntary, you know, like it, and I think traditionally kind of the church or the local community has provided a lot of this, mm -hmm. the market doesn't provide, but, um, you know, Mises 
makes this point too, that in that hypothetical free market where property can't be violated, consumers are sovereign, actually. Consumers are the boss. Whatever they're buying or whatever they're selling, that's their vote. Effectively, if you're buying, if consumers are, if I buy a house, that's a vote to the market to make more houses. If I sell a car, that's a vote to the market to make less cars. So mm-hmm. um, there's a, there seems to be like a pure democratic principle in a free market that can't be replicated. I'm not saying it solves everything, but it is, I mean, in my study, just the most effective form of democracy we've ever had. And I think this other form of democracy that we're typically referred to when we say democracy um, has a lot of flaws in it. Yeah, I think you get into consumer choice as like a proxy for voting, democratic voting or freedom is also interesting just because, you know, clearly (laughs) the whole advertising industry uh, is tries to manipulate choice. Um, yes. And again, kind of the one of the themes of this conversation around the the nested narratives, you know, how much choice do we have mm-hmm. in the in that voting process of how and where we're spending and um yeah, and I think uh I think maybe there's something here around too what does it mean to produce? What do we mean by the term production? And uh you know, I think because we're so we're so sort of hemmed in with this industrial idea of production mm-hmm. uh, as it applies to us and our labor and even viewing ourselves through the through the sort of scheme of um, of our value being so inherently tied up with our labor or what we can productively produce in this industrial system that it's very hard for us to imagine alternative forms of thinking of like self, you know, self-concept outside of just production value, essentially. Amen to that. Um, Yeah, our identity is very bound up in this market process to the point where, I mean, largely in the US, like you meet someone, one of the first questions, like, what do you do? Right? It's like straight to the, what's your role in all this? this hierarchy. Um, I agree. You know, like, I mean, I have, sorry, I, I have a dream that I just, you know, I just uh, go live beside a stream in some glorious mountain hut somewhere. And I write poetry for the rest of my life and no one even has to read it, but I feel the inexpressible joy of being alive with my feet on the ground. It's trying to use language as a tool to express the gratitude for which I feel for being alive. Is that producing I don't know. Is it, is it productive if I bury my poems and nobody knows who I am and I am whisked off, you know, the face of the earth and, um, and no trace of my existence ever sort of lives on after my death. I just, I think that there's, I think that was still a valuable life, you know? And so, yeah. So I just, that's why I guess I push back a little bit about some of these sort of, uh, you know, mental models we have about um, like markets and production value and value, you know, value creators and things like that, because I just, I think there's something more fundamental around human dignity outside of the, the ability to produce that is something that needs to be reclaimed in a more fundamental way. 
Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. First of all, it's a beautiful aspiration. Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it does sound like a life well lived. Um, and maybe there's a bit of, of a course paradox. I have to use the pencil that, you know, that like the, <laughs> the, the rest of the world, you know, yeah. Milton Friedman's pencil. Exactly. That, so I can, the you know, pencil, I'd be yeah. the recipient of everyone else's production, but yeah. Yeah. So my, this is just, I don't know, prospective, but it seems like there might be kind of a paradox with this is that we're living through the dominance of the market, right? It's been, it's been the ultimate generator of wealth for us for a few hundred years. But if it really succeeded, like if we, if it's, it could succeed so well that it could go completely the other way, right? What if all of a sudden we, whatever hypothetical breakthrough there is free energy or near free energy, which means, which translates into almost unlimited wealth, right? You could maybe work an hour a week and make Mm -hmm. ends meet something like that or less, who knows Mm -hmm. that you could then live that kind of life. Right. Right. Like I'm going to go work for a year and then I've saved up enough capital to survive forever. So I'm going to go live by the stream and write poetry. So there might, I mean, I guess that's my my hope for free markets. It's like, we just figure out to generate enough wealth, the way to generate enough wealth that economic scarcity is just, you know, largely a thing of the past. Then people are free to go out and pursue artistic pursuits, spiritual pursuits, whatever your creative impulse guides you towards. And I mean, that's a beautiful mm-hmm. world, right? Where everyone's doing that. Right. 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 Agreed. And then, you know, I suppose there'll be the convoy to Mars and wherever else. <laughs> Got to start over then. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to ask you too, and then we should probably save, save our conversation for okay. next time. Um, but I was having a chat with a friend last night about the simulation and how, you know, the potential, the potential for the fact that we actually are living in a simulation and, mm. um, yeah, it's a it's it's a fascinating one for me, especially because I am drawn to this idea of embodiment and the sort of reclamation of the physical reality to to think that you know it actually might just be zeros and ones all the way down. Um, so I'm curious if you've done any thought thinking on that and you know where your mind is there. Um, I mean, I've heard of the simulation hypothesis. I haven't given it a ton of thought. Um, I grew up playing video games. So I would wonder what that would even mean. Like, even if it was, this was all just a video game and, you know, I don't know, there's some deeper base reality. Like, what does that mean? Then when this is over, we wake up to base reality. I mean, I I don't really know. Um, But there seems to be this dynamic with this life, whatever simulation or not, where um, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it kind of thing. Like for me recently, again, discovering the work of people like Peterson, I felt like I used to think morality was just one of those social constructs, like one of those things we used to all get along. But now there seems to be a deeper connection. Like we're in, like karma is very real. There seems to be something very like as real as space and time is, hmm. is my latest view. So there's this, even if it is 
a simulation, man, is it a good one? Cause there's a lot of depth and complexity to it. You know, it's just so rich and mm. it's almost like the more, the, the more you engage with it authentically, right. With like a good moral aim and, you know, hard work and all these things that we, we cherish and prize as virtue, like the better life gets. So mm. I don't know, I don't, maybe this is just a current thing that's going on, but I've been really enjoying this approach to life recently where I used to have a bit more of a materialist approach to life. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, how many numbers, how many digits can I get in my bank account? How many cities can I travel to? How many, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of a meandering, but that's, I'm enjoying it lately. I don't know. Yeah. No, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think in my life, I've had some pretty real, real to me experiences of, um, I guess, you know, the word synchronicities or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things where they seem to defy rational explanation or, um, you know, I mean, I can, I can share one if, this isn't Please. too like yeah. blue and weird for your crowd. But um, when I was living in London, I um, I was riding the bus home one evening and I normally never stood in the position that I did. I, I normally would go upstairs on the double-decker bus and try to get a seat upstairs. And for whatever reason, I just happened to be standing at the back of the bus where it also had a door. And I was a couple of stops from my from my place and uh, the door opened and I, I felt like this voice said, get off the bus. And, um, I sort of hesitated and I was like, I don't want to walk that far, you know, (laughs) and I was still a couple stops from home and it was like, get off the bus right now. And so I got off and the door closed right behind me. And uh, I was like, okay, this is interesting. So I just kept walking And uh, I walked by this one sort of darker alley and out of the alleyway came four or five people all in black riding bicycles. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to take that shortcut. I'm going to keep walking (laughs) in the light. And, and as I was walking, um, you know, they kind of cased me and then I kept walking and then I hear a scream and I look over and this woman on the other side of the street is running down the street and the bikers go zooming off and um, they had just stolen her phone and her, which had all of her, uh, credit cards and everything mm-hmm. in it. And so she kind of runs to the end of the sidewalk and I just happened to be walking at the same pace. And so I end up there and I, you know, I go over and I say, are you okay? What happened? And she's like, oh, they stole all my stuff. And, uh, I just so happened to have cash in my wallet, which I never had. And so I like put her in a cab home and I let her use my phone to call her parents and stuff. And she was so appreciative and so grateful. And it was like, it seems like such a strange thing, right? Why, why did I hear that? Why did I get off the butt? And it's, it's not like anything majorly dramatic happened and she just got her phone stolen and I was able to help her out in a small way. Um, but, you know, I feel like I've had a number of experiences like that in my life that are very strange. And I think, okay, was that God? Was that um, the game simulators <laughs> giving me <laughs> something? Was that, uh, was that my own future consciousness that right. somehow relayed back to me in this interior voice, you know, uh, an instruction? And yeah, and I do 
agree with you that I think the more you engage in good faith with that idea that you actually can participate in life in a way that um, opens you up to those possibilities, the more it kind of comes through. Yeah. Um, but I don't have a good explanation for what that is. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I, yeah, I've experienced some synchronicities in my life as well, but um, you, you know what? It's funny. What is value is like the question we started off on today. You might enjoy this series I've been doing with Mike Hill where have you heard of the book Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance? I have, but I haven't read it. Although I have like aspirations of becoming a motorcycle chick and <laughs> doing that all day. <laughs> it's uh, I think it was written in the seventies or eighties. It was like the best selling philosophy book of the modern age, but uh, the author Robert Persig wrote another book 15 years later called Leela. Mm. And he's really going hard into this question. Like what is value? He also calls mm. it quality or excellence, like trying to really understand what it is. And it gets into this idea of time being kind of an illusion. He, mm, mm. I don't know if you, if you like to consume audio or video, you might want to check out the series, but if you prefer to read, which you maybe you do, cause you like to write so much. I, I prefer to read the book. Leela is just incredible. Mm. But one of the points he makes in that book is, and this, I think you can just think about this for like 20 years. It's so crazy. You can take all scientific literature, the whole scientific corpus, and you could take out A causes B, and you mm. could replace it with B values precondition A. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. And you would change none of the data. Zero data would change, but the interpretation totally changes. Right. So back, like we were talking about this conformity between creator and created and whatnot. What if there's some mm -hmm. conformity with our, like what we value is like us engaging with our potential future. Right, right. So there's some feedback. Like kind of like quantum entangled. Something. Time or I don't know. And Carl Jung too, because he wrote about, he called synchronicity the A-causal principle. And he had this concept of circumambulation where if you set your moral aim high, mm. that was a legitimate alternative to clinical psychology. Like you could just try mm. to set your moral aim really high in life and that would fix a lot of things. So there's something mm. like, <laughs> I mean, we're off in the deep end now, but there's something that I'm really deeply fascinated about this connection between morality, value, consciousness, time. And if you point yourself at the highest moral aim and just really work towards it, that the universe starts to like conspire in your favor or something like that. And I've experienced mm -hmm. that in my life. And it's, that's what I was trying to articulate earlier. Mm -hmm. It's like, once you start mm -hmm. doing that, even if it's a simulation, man, that's a good one. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm appreciative of, of any sort of like pre preconditioned algorithms, if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> but uh for for whatever design principles they've used um yeah no thank you for sharing that that's really that's i think that is really beautiful and also yeah i think you know i think inherent in all of these conversations that we're all sort of grasping at these questions about you know fundamentally mm -hmm. and i guess to circle back to the 
the beginning of the post that we had talked about with what is life and what is economic value and this idea that it's really hard to define life. And one of the philosophers that I quote in there actually says, that's the wrong question because it, it detracts from the real question of what does it mean to be alive? Mm. And so I think that with all of these, all of these questions that you're asking and that I'm asking, there is this, this set of deeper questions about, mm. you know, what, is it, what does it mean to be human and to show up here and to, and to be an actor in this, you know, incredible, incredible space that we mm. call home. And um, thanks for sharing that inquiry with me. Yeah, of course. Nice. I think um, really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Genuinely. Um, so thank you. Could you please just let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter, <laughs> uh, sort of not very often, but uh, Denise Hearn underscore. And then uh, my embodied economics newsletter is probably the best place as well. So embodied economics.ghost.io. <laughs> it's not a great, uh, it's, you know, but anyway, if you, if you just search embodied economics, it should show up. Wonderful. All right. We'll link to all that in the show notes and Denise, thank you again. This was great. Thank you. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What Is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analex at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day, as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars, to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile, at breedlove22, um, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including Bitcoin 2022 affiliate cells. My link tree is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e backslash breedlove22. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.